Jeremy Mercer, thanks so much for joining us on Not So Private Equity. Really interested to talk with you about your investments through Matador Realty Investments. Of course, you're the CEO of that organization. But before we dive into that in any detail, I want to understand how you got into the investment space. I know that you went to tech as an undergrad. You played football for them. What do you say we start there and tell us what you did right after college and your path to investing? Sure. Yeah, so went to Texas Tech. Graduated from there with a finance degree with a real estate emphasis. Got out and kind of started chasing like uh, pre foreclosures for uh, you know houses. Didn't really have any success doing it. I think a lot of people had a hard time wrapping their head around a 22 year old being able to pull off a deal <laughs> where they or they're on the shot clock of losing their house. But uh, learned a lot of cold calling. You know, just cold calling people doing that. You know, because I was going on knocking on their door at their house. So after that, you know, my brother had gotten into the industrial space on the brokerage side and uh, he started buying a couple assets here and there and he needed someone to property manage them. So I started property managing these assets. You know, after about six years of that, he had started his own brokerage. And so I moved over to the brokerage side of things back in 2010. Brokered really hard for probably about 12 years. And then probably about the beginning of 21, I'd sold a lot of assets to a lot of private equity companies. And, and I just realized that I felt like I could do this myself versus, you know, having to do, you know, selling these guys, all these other shops, the buildings. And because we kind of, I knew how to make deal flow happen. And, and that's really the key. You know, a lot of shops have money, but they don't have deal flow. And um, we got pretty serious about it in the beginning of 21. And I've kind of ramped up since then with Matador. So I still broker a couple things here and there, but I'm really focused on managing our assets and, and acquiring new ones and working through our portfolio. So the transition there was from the sell side, right? You were selling assets, properties to private equity firms. Any particular type of asset that you focused on or size or value? All class B and C industrial assets. So really the stuff that we buy now. And along the way throughout that, I'd owned some operating companies and acquired some operating companies. I was in the steel business for a while. So I'd, every now and then I'd sell a company or two for somebody and, and something like that as well. But mainly just uh, selling B and C assets and then doing, you know, I'd also do a lot of brokerage work where it was either tenant rep assignments or leasing assignments and stuff like that. So Good. And then the transition from the brokerage side to becoming an investment firm yourself. How does that transition work? Do you need to reorganize, start a whole new company? Do you need to bring in other investors? What were some of the hurdles to making that move? Yeah. So, you know, the first deal I syndicated was one of the private equity companies that I sold a lot of buildings to. They had bought a building. And, you know, when you start off kind of in any career, you want to take any kind of thing on and couple years down the road, that thing calls you back. You're like, this is too small for me to work on now. And that's where these guys were at. They kind of accidentally bought a building that was probably too small for them. And they called me to list it for them. And um, I said, well, why don't you just sell it to me? So they marked it up about a hundred grand and sold it to me. So it was like a $500,000 deal. And uh, I syndicated it. You know, it was my first deal. So, you know, first time I'd raise money. So, you know, I put my deck together and just, I only had to raise about 200000 on it. But it was kind of nerve-wracking, right? I was like, man, God, can I raise 200 something thousand dollars and you know, it worked. You know, it went pretty well. So, but, you know, I just kind of put a story together, right? Investors want to hear a story and they want to hear a game plan and all that. And we had that there and started with that one. And then a couple months later, got another one 
one, and and that was in 2020. So I, I bought that building, and then about a, another $800,000 building in 2020. And then I was like, man, I think I can make this. And uh, I really wanted to create it as a whole separate company, kind of separate from brokerage so that there just wasn't confusion about what we do. Because also moving to the principal side of things, I need brokers to bring me deals. And having an investment shop under a brokerage hat kind of sends some mixed signals to people, I think. So it was my idea just to kind of start a whole separate thing from the brokerage company so that there wasn't confusion about what I was doing. So I'd given up my brokerage territory. We work in, you know, Mercer Company works in submarket specialization. So, you know, I'd, I'd given up my territory and I was just working client business. And that was kind of my story to local brokers in Dallas that, hey, I'm not competing with you anymore. I'm going to work my client business, but you don't have that anyway. So I'm a safe person to sell a building to. And that's worked, lo and behold, enough. bought a lot of buildings and own a lot of buildings with a bunch of different brokers in Dallas. So... But yeah, we had to staff up and just make our own team for it. So I kind of started with one person and now we're at eight. So Excellent. So whenever you're buying these businesses, I imagine that oftentimes, given the types of assets that you're buying, there's an operating business inside of those buildings. Maybe not always, you probably tell us how often that happens, but it sounds like you're buying that real estate asset, but not the actual company that's operating inside of the building. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. How does that usually work? Is someone else coming in at the same time as you and buying the company and then you're handling the real estate piece of it? I wish. I think there's a whole platform for that out there. What I do realize, though, is it seems like a lot of times most small businesses, all of their real value is in their building and their business isn't really worth that much. That's generally the case. So that's always the challenge, right? When you get the business involved, you know, when you're buying a business, there's 500 variables in it, you know, in real estate, there's about five to 10. So there's a lot more complex issues. You know, I do have an equity partner that runs a a private equity company and they run operating companies and we've tried to connect on a couple, but there's a lot more to a business, to buying a business than there is to buying a piece of real estate. So I've always wanted to create the platform for it. I just don't ever want to run operating companies again. It just, it, it takes a lot. You got to be really committed to running that. And I never took the time to find the right operator for it. I think it would take having, pairing up with a firm that knows how to go put the right operator in place and manage that process of it. And so I'm looking for those relationships, but it's tough to find. So yeah, no, certainly. So whenever a private equity firm that buys companies, whenever they buy those companies, generally what they do is they'll put in some cash, improve operations, maybe switch out talent, and then the company will be a better company. And then they sell it for more money because it's now a better company. How do you make a profit on buying and selling real estate? Is it different than buying it in a growing market and just holding on to it for a number of years until real estate values increase? Now, it's very similar to the process you just explained. It's um, a lot of times we'll buy these small bay industrial parks. They're ran by a mom and pop organization. There's no real lease enforcement. They're not keeping up with market rents. Everybody's on a month to month lease because the tenants, there becomes this relationship with the owner of these parks and the tenants. And then the relationship is the owner doesn't mess with the tenants. So the tenants, and by raising their rent, so the tenant doesn't ever call the owner about their air conditioner going out. So they create this relationship where everybody's happy with doing nothing. And then eventually when the owner sells, we will come in and be like, hey, you got to get on a real lease and you got to get to market. 
So obviously some of the tenants don't like us for getting them to market, but they reluctantly do it. And we actually operate the property properly. You know, we replace the roof when the roof needs to get replaced. So there's a lot of inefficiencies in the operations that we can come in as a real real estate company, buy it, put it on a real system, maintain everybody's, make sure they're keeping their insurance. All these things and run it like a business. We add a lot of value through mark to marketing the rents through a business process and knowing the market. So same thing. It's about like value adding a company. That makes a lot of sense. As you were saying earlier, in an operating business, tons of variables to pay attention to. So with your model, you're coming in and handling the variables that are real estate focused, which leaves those operating businesses more time to really focus on those number of variables that they need to worry about. And they don't need to add all of their HR issues and their accounting issues to the, hey, the roof is leaking issues or the air conditioning is is out issues. What about real estate? So I know that you are in Dallas. Do you only buy properties in Dallas or do you look outside of Dallas? No, we are very focused on the I-35 corridor from San Antonio to Oklahoma City. So we buy in those major metropolitan areas off of the off of that freeway from, you know, so San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Oklahoma City. From an operational standpoint for us, it's easy to get to any of our assets quickly, just going up and down I-35, and we feel like there's a lot of growth in that corridor. And we don't really syndicate these deals, but we do some residential development type stuff down in land entitlement deals in the Temple area. And I just see from the home builders how much they're plowing into this part of the country. And for that, I look at residential housing starts. Industrial usually follows by about two years, the demand for industrial. So I just think that's a great corridor easy for us to operate in and very focused. It's a great pitch for equity, right? Here's our box. We buy in this box right here. And uh, I think that's what equity looks for a lot of times is someone that's very laser focused. So, Yeah, they want someone who knows what they're doing. Tell me about your team. So I know you started off with one person. Now you have eight. What do your team members do? So we have a marketing, our chief marketing officer. She's doing all of our decks, all of our media for all of our social channels. She does all of our investor reporting as well, investor relations. And, you know, she also handles when it's time to get a deal signed and get investors money. She handles the whole process, signing the operating agreement, getting the wires in and, and distributing that. And we have full-time accounting, managing the properties and the opco side of things. So, you know, we're managing all the tenants. We're using some freelancers offsite for like uh, ARAP functions. And then Angie handles more of just the major accounting functions, getting property set up, more of the heavy lift type accounting items, and then handles all the distributions for our investors. And we have a COO now, Joey, and he um, really focuses on the asset management, the metrics of uh, analyzing our portfolio, when our leases are rolling, when we need to get ahead of our tenants' renewals, managing vacancies. Vacancies always create a lot of work, managing the larger construction projects and TIs and stuff like that. And then also, uh, Joey works a lot on architecting our CRM and our database as we add every property that we're tracking to it. And then we have Natalie and Justin running property management, all the issues that come up with property management. And then we have a full-time underwriter offline or online as well, a guy named Garrett, and he's, you know, we're finding deals, send them to him. And then we have Will, who's our director of acquisitions. I mean, he's the kind of the first line of 
hey, here's a deal. He's business developing with brokers all day long, talking to them, getting it on the front line, and then getting it to a point, and then we sit in the investment committee, and he and I start tearing it apart after our underwriter and analysts have gone through it all. So that's kind of the structure of our team right now. And we got bandwidth to keep going with what we got and, uh, you know, eventually probably just be adding more property management because we keep all of our assets under our management. So... Whenever you're looking at a property, do you get more excited by a piece of real estate that needs some work, or are you looking for turnkey operations? I would say both, right? It depends what mood I'm in that day. Sometimes you look at a construction project and you're like, ugh, this looks like a bunch of work. I get really excited when the deal has yield in it and there's nothing to do. That's honestly the best deal because it just doesn't take bandwidth off the team. You know, like a sale lease back, right? You know, we can start making distributions immediately. There's not like a big business plan to work through. It's you buy it and they lease it back and you start collecting rent. So those are actually pretty good, I'd have to say. <laughs> Since you have your brokerage background, are you finding a lot of deals yourself or are you leaning on other brokers to bring you deals primarily? I primarily lean on other brokers to bring me deals. I feel like you only have so much in your brokerage gas tank, and I feel like I've used all that up for the most part on trying to go do that stuff. I'm really into running the operation now. and. You create this thing, you don't think about it, but you need to have a capital market side of things. And so I spend a lot of time with equity partners, just telling them my vision and my plan and getting them to invest with us and help us along the way. And so I spend a lot more of my time with the debt and the equity side of things, just developing those relationships. So, Your equity partners, are they usually just high net worth individuals? Or are they other private equity firms doing partnership deals with you? Tell us about who you're usually working with. Yeah, so we've just worked with just high net worth individuals over the past two years, and we've raised, I don't know, probably about $38 million through those individuals, and we've gotten to about $120 million assets under management with them. I do always feel there's a runway with retail investors at some point, so I've always been working on a larger equity partner, and we, you know, we have come to terms with some other funds to come in and help with us, so essentially two separate like fund-to-funds partners and uh, that go out and look for operators like us to invest with. And so we've created those relationships and are starting those JV equity programs now. A lot of private equity firms that we talk with that are leveraged buyout funds that are buying operating businesses, they like to hold on to those businesses maybe four to seven years and then sell them. Do you have a similar model whenever it comes to hold time? Sure. We underwrite our exits to five years on everything. But we are also opportunistic. I mean, we bought a building in April and we sold it three weeks ago because the next door neighbor wanted it and they paid us the number that made sense. So I hit my five-year number in six months and that was the safest thing to de-risk my equity partners and sell it. And, you know, we're going to do a 1031 hopefully with it. And we're, so we're in an exchange right now. But uh, typically we'll hold for, yeah, about five years. The kind of goal for our platform is to get to about 5 million square feet of assets and then sell a million feet a year and buy a million feet a year. And just kind of the reasoning for that is I kind of backed into the number of how many employees that would take to run that operation. And that's about the limit of employees that I want to have on my operating side. So end of 2022 and early 2023, we're hearing a lot about weak deal flow from a lot of the private equity firms that we talk with. Were you experiencing that on the real estate side as well? We've always had great deal flow. We track it. We're very meticulous about tracking all of our numbers. 
I think last quarter we averaged 54 million deals a week presented to us. So, you know, there's a distilling process to all that, right? Not all those are great. You know, majority of them are not. But um, we review everything that comes across our desk. You know, in 2022, we had 1.2 billion in deals presented to us, and we offered on 250 million of that, and we transacted 56 million of it. So. We like to track that metric to really see, and with deals being tougher to, to buy this year, even though we're seeing 50 to 60 million a week in deals, I was telling Will, our director of acquisitions, we need to get this to 100 million because the deals are getting harder and harder to connect. So we need to see more so that we can keep our buying levels up. So the good thing about that though, is seeing that much is we don't have to like get too excited about a deal and try to make it work because there'll be another one next week or in the next two or three days, we'll have more coming to us. So. Yeah, that's excellent. And some of the operating private equity firms we work with by operating companies, whenever they're trying to convince those owners of those companies to sell their business to the private equity firm, those owners have lots of concerns. Hey, how are you going to help out my team? Do you have an in-house talent person that will help us there? What type of operations experience do you have? Lots of things that they're considering whenever they're considering who to sell their business to. On the real estate side, do you have similar concerns or is it a purely a bidding or about, hey, which real estate focus and private equity firm is going to pay me the most? Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily always pay me the most. I think it's surety of close. You know, we were awarded a deal early this year and we were $50,000 less in the transaction, but the competing buyer just didn't have near the track record we did. And so that's why the seller went with us. So back to the marketing side of things, you know, we're very good at showing our portfolio. If you look at our website, you know, every asset we own is on there. So it's very easy to go to a seller and say, hey, your building is perfect for us. We buy this type of asset. Here's our website. Go look at every asset we own. It looks just like your building. So that really gives them a comfort level of, okay, these guys know what they're looking at because they're being C industrial buildings. They're not the prettiest things in the world, you know. But we know how to make money with them, and we just transact. And the good thing is, too, I think we've built a reputation of closing. So a lot of brokers will vouch for us, you know. So a lot of times the seller's leaning on the broker to be like, you know these guys, like, are they going to close? Are they real, you know? And uh, that's what they're looking for. So I, I think it's a very similar process. So We've talked in broadly about the types of buildings you're buying, right? BNC industrial buildings. Is there any type of operating company, let's say, you know, hey, there's a plastics manufacturer was operating in this business or, hey, it was a, a warehouse and distribution company operating inside of this building. Does any type of company make you more nervous about that building? Not necessarily. I mean, maybe manufacturing just because I came from that world and I know how hard it is, but it depends on what they are manufacturing. So my manufacturing background, we were a, a custom sheet metal shop, so like a job shop. And when you're a job shop, it's something new every day. So what I like to find out when I do buy a building that has a manufacturer in it, do they have a product that they build and like a proprietary product that is over and over again? Because that's really important in the manufacturing space to where you have repeatability in something versus it being new every day. That way, you know, your machines are set up and they run this part over and over and over again. I would be more concerned about a job shop type operation that's uh, very, you know, you want me to build you a sign, you want me to build you a truck bed or whatever that, you know, it just changes every day. So that's what I would look for in a manufacturer is the repeatability of whatever they're making. Okay, that makes sense. So it's more about the sustainability of the business itself because you want them to be 
long-term tenants. It doesn't have anything to do with, hey, this is a chemical manufacturers and this type of chemical manufacturer just ruins buildings or something like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the environmental sensitivity comes in, but I mean, if they're large enough, if their balance sheet is big enough, then we can get through any of those concerns. And they don't want those problems either, typically. But like, yeah, if someone wanted to do uh, chrome plating, I wouldn't allow one of those in. I don't know if you've ever been in a chrome plating facility, but I feel like you're inhaling cancer while you're in there. <laughs> yeah. What about major projects that the operating companies want to execute? So let's say a company wants to focus more on ESG and they want to replace every light bulb with you know an LED light bulb, or they want to switch out perfectly fine working air conditioning systems with a new or more efficient air conditioning system. Do you pay for that as the building owner or does that operating company pay for that? That's really on the operating company unless it's down to a point where we're negotiating a lease renewal or a new lease. At the end of the day, all that stuff has to just make financial sense to really do it. But if they are trying to appease their own internal self, then they can do that on their own dime. That makes sense. And and Jeremy, during the quick overview of your career that we talked through whenever we started our conversation, it sounds like you haven't worked for anyone besides yourself or maybe a family member. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. What kept you um, going down that path? It sounds like right out of college, you were doing the cold calling and you, you pursued a business or a career that didn't work out. Why didn't you just pivot and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go do what my other buddies did and go get a salary? I don't know. I just have a way I want to do things and I feel like I can execute on them. Now, I will say the one thing that, although that's good and it's great and all, the one thing I don't have is experience from larger companies. So when I hire people, I try to hire them away from larger organizations so that they show me things that I haven't seen. Because there's things you learn about in those, I'm assuming, that I just don't know about. And it's like, oh, well, we did this like this. You never heard of this? And I'm like, oh, no, no, I haven't. So that's where I try to hire from to help me because I do think it is a deficiency that I've never worked anywhere else. But, I mean, it's worked out for me. But I do think there are some things of being at a larger firm and then going out and doing something on your own. I'm sure you get tons of phone calls every day. Of Three types of phone calls, let's say it could be in an investor calling you who wants to give you some money, somebody who owns a building themselves, like let's say I run a company, I own a company, I own the building that the company is in, and then uh, also some, a broker. Of those three phone calls, which ones are you most excited about getting? Probably someone telling me they want to sell their building to me. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, someone that owns a building. I get excited about the deal. That's where I find. Good. So anyone who lives up and down I-35, if they own one of those large buildings and are considering selling it or want to know what they could get for it in the market, they should give you a call? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Jeremy, is there anything else that we should chat about before we wrap up? No, I think um, market's weird right now, but I think that creates a lot of opportunity for everybody and get creative. I think that's who's going to make it through these things right now. You know, we're seeing a lot of creative structuring in real estate. I know... In buying operating companies, there's a lot of owner financing that's usually tied to it, but we're starting to get a lot of that crack open in the commercial real estate world. So that's making things a lot easier because the banks have gotten so difficult. So I think that's a big thing. So I think if you're buying anything right now, I think the big thing is to ask if you can get that from the seller. And I think they will start accommodating those things. Very good. Appreciate that insight, Jeremy. And thanks so much for joining us on Not So Private Equity. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. 